Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning. It's a joy to be here with you. Um, You know, over the past five years, through my friendship with Scott, I have had uh, many conversations, and I've gotten this sort of from a distance, this unique view into the life and growth of your church, and yet to be here this morning and experience it. I was, I was talking to Rose uh, and William after the, the first service, and uh, I had not seen the video of their testimony uh, any more than you had. I just experienced it when I came in here, and uh, it was just powerful, you know, to have heard some stories from Scott about God's work among you, and even again to just be here and experience it. And uh, sort of as a side note in saying that, um, you know, I, I trust that you know this, and uh, if, if you don't, though, I want to make sure that I say it, that you are a, a blessed congregation to have Scott as your lead pastor. And, um, you know, I have uh, an opportunity to be around a lot of pastors uh, pretty regularly and just get to learn from them and be encouraged by and hopefully encourage them in some sense. And yet, through the years, you know, what I've um, sort of even last night, even as we were at dinner, just come back back around to in my interactions with him is just what a a rarity he is among pastors in terms of just a man that is filled with things that uh, come out in terms of his zeal, integrity, and conviction, and, you know, skill, and vision, and then yet at the same time the mixture of that with with this sort of humble love, uh, that there's a true sense of humility and love that he has for you, that he has for your neighbors, and uh, and so it's just it's just been an encouragement for me to uh, for you to have shared him with me in the ways that you have over the years, and I've been blessed to get to know him. And uh, having been around him and heard about you, I've been excited to get to be here with you this morning. And uh, and I pray that I'd be able to serve your life together in some small way, especially as you're in this season. And uh, I do bring greetings from our church family uh, in Denton, Texas, so from your brothers and sisters there, and then in addition to that, from my uh, family as well, and want to show you a picture of them. Uh, they are so sad that they're not here with you this morning. They, especially my wife, love this part of the country so very much, but uh, couldn't come. So that's my wife, Kimberly. Uh, that uh, is my son, Haddon, there in the middle. He's the oldest. He's 10. To his left is our daughter, CJ. She's eight. On the other side uh, is our daughter, Elliot. Uh, she is seven. And then uh, the little guy there in the middle is Isaiah, and he is four years old. And, uh, and so that's my crew, and they bring greetings. Again, they wish they could be here with you, but uh, I am grateful on their behalf to be here. And uh, I know you guys have been going through this sermon series um, called Revive, where you have been as a congregation sort of seeking to understand and uh, experience even revival personally and collectively as a church. I know, as Scott said, today is also Orphan Sunday, this historic Sunday that you've set aside to focus in different ways as you have on orphan care. And so what I want to try to do together, or today rather, is to bring the two together and, uh, and reflect on what I think is the biblical witness that one of the signs of a healthy and even a revived church is a sensitive social conscience and a life together as a church that is poured out in love for neighbor. Uh, especially our most vulnerable neighbors. And so another way to put that is that a sincere and genuine knowledge and experience of God's grace, of his reviving and restorative love by his spirit, it inevitably impels us to seek justice out of love for our neighbors. And there is this direct, and we might even say inevitable, relationship between a church's love for God, a church's revival, and its love for neighbor. 
especially the poorest and most vulnerable neighbors. Because even as the Lord Jesus himself once said, you know, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And, you know, this is one of the lessons from church history, certainly from scripture as we'll look at today, but also from church history that throughout the years, one of the reasons of historians and sociologists, even those that were not Christians, have tried to figure out how Christianity grew. You know, certainly at the center of that is the resurrection of Jesus, that we believe that really happened, and that's why it grew. But then how did it continue to flourish in the pluralistic context that it did in the Roman Empire and go from this sort of backwoods religion to being at the heart of things? And, uh, and one of the things that these sociologists have found is the way that the church has loved both each other and its neighbors. And uh, in fact, in the fourth century, there was a Roman emperor named Julian, and, uh, and he wrote... And in his writing, he was regretting the progress of Christianity in the empire and how it was pulling people away from Roman gods. And he wrote in one of the places that he did, and he said, quote, atheism, speaking of Christianity, you know, the early Christians were thought of as atheists because they believed only in the one God, not all the gods that all their neighbors worshipped. And so he said, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers by these atheists. He said, it's a scandal that there's not a Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, speaking of Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And what he was fearing and what he was expressing was, this is why so many of our own poor are putting their hope in this Galilean Savior. And, uh, and so when you look at church history, you see all throughout the years how the church in part has grown through their love as the Spirit has led them along. So if you have your Bible, uh, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10 with me this morning, and uh, we're going to see here in this passage the priority of love in the Christian life and church, and, uh, and even think about, you know, if you want to know if you have a revived life or a revived church we will know in large part by our love. And uh, I just want to encourage you in that love. From what I've heard, um, you know, throughout the years, just your love for each other and for your neighbors, as I've heard about it through Scott, it is just something to praise God for. And even as, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, one time he wrote to him and said, listen, in terms of loving each other and others, I've got no need to write you anything. You're already doing this. It's already well known that you're doing this. I feel the same way about you, you know, at least in my mind. It's well known how you're loving each other and loving others. And so I'm here to encourage you in that, not to offer any sort of correction uh, in that regard. So if you're here in Luke chapter 10, um, you know, Luke 10, um, for those of you that may have read Luke's gospel before, it is a moment in Luke's story that is right at the start of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus is on his way, he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die on the cross for our sins, he's going to be raised from the dead three days later, then 40 days later he's going to ascend into heaven and be exalted as Lord, and so that's where the story's headed, and yet right here is the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem, and from the beginning of his journey to Jerusalem, Luke makes it clear to those of us that are reading his story that Jesus intentionally used his journey to Jerusalem to train his disciples about what it means to live faithfully as his followers, as his church in the world. And, uh, and so as he begins to set his face here in Luke chapter 10 toward Jerusalem, uh, Jesus starts teaching his disciples about what it's going to cost for them to follow him. And then he sends his disciples out, 70 of them, to begin practicing the ministry that they've seen him 
that he's going to leave for them. And then it's here as these 70 that he has sent out have just returned from their ministry endeavors. Jesus is kind of debriefing with this group of his disciples. And as he's debriefing with them, there's this disruption that happened. And it's a disruption that provides Jesus yet another opportunity as they're going toward Jerusalem to teach his disciples. And what he teaches them in the midst of this disruption, as he responds to it, it provides us both clarity and encouragement about the priorities of our life as a church of disciples. And so let's look here uh, in verse 25 at this disruption. It says, Luke tells us, as they were debriefing, it says, Behold, a lawyer, and that's a lawyer not in the sense that we typically think of lawyers like a lawyer of the civil law. Uh, that's a lawyer of the religious law. So he was a, 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 the law of God, right? And so he was a lawyer of the law of God, of the scriptures. And this lawyer stood up in front of all these disciples to put him, speaking of Jesus, to the test. To get Jesus to say something that would sort of expose his wrong theology. And he said to Jesus, teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, you're a lawyer. You tell me what's written in the law that you're a lawyer of. How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, it's easy, I think, to sort of miss it, but Jesus is really winsome here because as this disruption happens and this question gets asked, he avoids falling into this lawyer's trap, and he does so by getting the lawyer to answer his own question. The lawyer asks, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, what do you think? You're a lawyer. You know the law of God. You tell me. And the lawyer answers his own question, and then Jesus affirms his answer to that question, and what Jesus affirms with these 70-plus disciples gathered around him and watching him is that the priority of life and the pursuit of eternal life for a disciple of Jesus is love, to love God and to love our neighbors. And, you know, this has certainly been highlighted throughout the centuries of the Christian church. You know, you think about the early African bishop and, uh, and theologian named Augustine. Maybe some of you have heard of him or read from him, but uh, he called this double love of God and neighbor, what Jesus describes and affirms right here. In fact, Augustine once wrote, he said, whoever therefore thinks that he understands uh, the divine scriptures or really any part of them so that it does not build up the double love of God and neighbor doesn't understand scripture at all. We might say in light of the sermon series, anybody thinks they understand revival? They've experienced revival in such that it doesn't build up this double love of God and neighbor? Doesn't know anything about revival at all. You know, and Augustine, as he kept on teaching, he actually taught that the whole of the Christian life of discipleship is really this constant work of keeping the priority of one's love in proper order. That's really what spiritual formation is. And even if you ever come to Denton, Texas, we'd love to have you um, come. And, uh, you know, if you walk into our church's house, uh, this verse is actually from Luke on the heart of our church's house to remind us that when we come together every Sunday as we come together to worship the risen Lord, we come together also to reorder our love. That's what we're doing every time we gather. And of course, love, biblically speaking, it's not, as our culture thinks of it, fundamentally an emotion. It's not a feeling. 
Love is an action. It's a commitment. It's a habit, regardless of how we feel, to do good to others, even at great cost to ourselves. And love is this commitment, the defining ethic of the Christian life, of a revived life in church. And, uh, and Jesus, of course, saying and affirming what this lawyer said wouldn't have been surprising. There were at least a handful of religious teachers in the first century who likewise summarized the instruction of God's commands, the Torah, this same way as love of God and love of neighbor. In fact, this is why this, uh, this lawyer perhaps was saying this. And yet Jesus is the only one that we know of who took these words of Torah and summarized the life and priorities of God's people the way that he did. And he basically here is affirming in this man's answer of his own question you want to follow me? He's teaching his disciples. Remember, in the way that he's answering the lawyer, he's doing it for the sake of those listening in as well. And he's saying, you want to follow me? Do this, which he still says to us today. You want to live a revived life? You want to be a revived church? Do this. Live out of this double love. And, of course, though, what Jesus did say here that would have been surprising and scandalous is the parable that he tells to illustrate this life of double love that marks a revived life in church after he answered the man's question. So look here in verse 29, because the lawyer, Luke tells us, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with this parable. He said, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, speaking of the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This parable would have been shocking. And uh, so as we reflect on why, that would be um, sort of three categories. If you like to take notes, I was telling the earlier service, you know, I am um, not good at giving outlines in uh, my sermon. So this is the best you're ever going to get. Uh, you know, my church, I drive them crazy. But three sort of categories one or two of them more brief than the other, but that I want to highlight as we reflect on this parable. Number one, just the familiarity of the parable. Uh, number two, the heart of the parable. And then number three, just reflecting on living out the parable. So the familiarity of the parable, the heart of the parable, and living out the parable, starting with the familiarity of the parable. And, uh, and you know, this parable that Jesus tells here, it's perhaps the most famous and familiar parable in all of Jesus' teaching that we have. Even if you're here this morning uh, and you're, you're not a Christian, you have most likely heard this parable that Jesus taught that we just read, or at least you've heard the phrase, 
no doubt, Good Samaritan. Because this parable has had such a powerful impact that even now, 2,000 years later, it remains lodged in the moral imaginations and everyday language of people in our culture here in the United States and in most cultures around the world, such that we're all familiar with it, even if we've never actually read it. And I want to say in highlighting that, that I think that our familiarity with the parable, at least in the church, it's a good sign. Because part of what it highlights is that amid all the disagreements within the church throughout history and amid all the disagreements that still exist within the Christian church today, there has been and continues to be unity about the importance of at least this parable. Right? There, there is a sense for all that we disagree on that there's solidarity around the fact that what Jesus teaches here in this parable about loving neighbor, this love that the late Dr. Martin Luther King in his very last sermon called this dangerous unselfishness, that this love is central to the life and the mission of the church, to what we're called to do and what we're called to be as God's people. So for all that we Christians may disagree on, we agree on this. And how could we not? I mean, even if you just think about just the other parts of Jesus' teaching where he told his disciples toward the end of his life, you know, once he got to Jerusalem, he said, listen, they're going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another. But then throughout the rest of the scripture is they were the disciples and the, the, the leaders of the church and throughout church history, they were sort of trying to summarize Jesus' teaching. Man, they summarized it in terms of these same commands. The summary of the whole law is to love your neighbor. Everything God wants for us and from us can be summarized as loving your neighbor as yourself. So the familiarity of this parable is, I think, a good thing. And yet the other reason I want to highlight the familiarity of it is because our familiarity with it can also breed contempt if we're not careful. Contempt in terms of both living out the parable, but also in our actual reading and understanding of it. Because this parable is... It's one of the stories that we can come to in Scripture with the mindset, having heard it and become so familiar with it, we can come and read it and go, yeah, 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 I got it. I understand it. I've been hearing about that for a long, long time, Pastor, like decades, my whole life, since they were putting on felt boards. I, I understand this parable, and certainly there are things to understand and to be got from the parable, and yet I do think it's possible for us to grasp some of these things that the parable teaches us and miss the heart of it. And so that leads us to the second category here of the heart of the parable. What lies at the heart of this parable, and even of the lawyer's question to Jesus, is, as one scholar put it, two quite different visions of what it means to be God's people. And that's significant. You look here in verse 25. Luke tells us in verse 25 there that the lawyer, again, of the Jewish law, he begins this conversation with Jesus to test him, right? He, 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 he's challenging Jesus publicly, which is a normal thing that teachers in this day would do. But, but Luke is telling us he's, in asking the question, he's trying to uncover Jesus's perhaps heretical views and teaching about God's plan for the world, and especially those in the world who were not God's chosen people, those who were not Israelites, and Luke tells us in verse 29 that the lawyer's follow-up question, not just his first question, but his follow-up question where he asked, who is my neighbor, is motivated as well by his desire to justify himself 
after his initial question to test and trap Jesus fail. So in other words, he asks who is my neighbor, not simply to prove that his first question wasn't a dumb or obvious question that Jesus pointed out, like, you already know the answer to your question. Why are you asking me the question? And it's like, oh. So then he doesn't quit getting at what he's getting at. And what is he getting at? Well, verse 29 tells us, who is my neighbor? He asks it to win the debate with Jesus, but also to prove to those listening in that his vision of what it means to be God's people, what it means to be a neighbor is right, and that Jesus' view is wrong and actually heretical. And what this lawyer's question reveals is that at the heart of these differing visions of what it means to be God's people is a differing view of who God says our neighbor is or of how far our love should go or reach. And so and to understand that, you sort of have to understand what Jesus and this lawyer agreed on that was framing the background of this conversation. And what they agreed on was this priority and call for God's people to love your neighbor as yourself that both the lawyer and Jesus affirmed from Leviticus chapter 19. So that is what is in their minds as they're having this conversation is Leviticus 19 where it talks about the love of neighbor that God's holiness requires of his people and it describes love primarily in terms of fellow Israelites, loving your fellow Israelites, your people according to flesh. But then in that passage in Leviticus 19, it's also this love to be extended to resident aliens or or foreigners who embrace God's covenant with his chosen people. And so the status of a neighbor, of who a neighbor is, and the command to love neighbor extends to these foreigners, these non-Jews, as is seen in Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34. And yet, in the day of Jesus, a day where foreigners, where foreign powers, presently the Roman Empire, had made a habit of conquering and oppressing God's special people, Israel, many of God's people no longer viewed the foreigners among them as neighbors anymore. They viewed these foreigners as their enemies. And of course, they felt justified in doing so. And so what that means, and why it's helpful for us, is because much like in our own culture today, in Jesus' day when they're having this conversation, social life had become extremely tribal. And I assume maybe you know what I mean by tribal. That word sort of gets thrown around. But a tribal culture is a culture in which communities of people are socially divided or segregated by tribes or groups which are based on some sort of identity marker according to the flesh. Nationality, ethnicity, ancestry, social class, religion, tax bracket, one's political or theological convictions, tribes, Duke or North Carolina or North Carolina State. Is that, a tri- is that a tribal sort of thing here? I'm trying to enter in culturally, you know, being where I live. You know, the university across the street, they don't, they're just into art and music. They don't care about sports or any of that sort of thing, so I'm trying to enter in here. And, uh, and so tribal. And, uh, and the question then Who is my neighbor? That is a loaded question in a tribal culture. It's a question, as the lawyer knew full well, that would test Jesus' loyalty and his purity in regards to certain tribes. 
And so one's answer to that question could actually determine one's popularity and status as a teacher. Friends, this is why the lawyer asks the question, both to justify his own popularity and status and his own view, but also to undermine Jesus's. And the drama of all of this makes Jesus' answer to the lawyer's question, this now familiar parable he tells, all the more powerful. Because look at verse 30, look what Jesus does. He says, Jesus replied, in other words, literally it says he took up the question, which I like. Jesus is like, yep, I'll pick up that challenge. I'll take up the question and we'll do this publicly right here in front of everybody. And he replies to him with this parable and he starts the parable by saying, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, verse 30, and the man fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. What's so powerful about that setup to the parable? Well, what's powerful about it is Jesus doesn't give any details about the man who was left half dead's tribe. Do you notice that? The man that he describes as being beaten and left half dead, he's not described as a friend. He's not described as a foe. He's not a good guy, a bad guy. He's not a Jew. He's not a Gentile. He's not in this tribe or that tribe. He's just a human being. He's just a vulnerable neighbor in need that we know nothing about besides that he's a vulnerable human being in need. And introducing the man in the parable this way, Jesus, what he does is he immediately undermines the trap the lawyer laid in asking, who is my neighbor? By refusing to give him an identity marker according to the flesh. And Jesus then completely through doing that exposes and even reframes the lawyer's real question because the real question that the lawyer's asking is, and how far does my love of a neighbor have to go? Based on Leviticus 19. Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. But, but really, who's my neighbor? Which neighbors do I not have to love? Where can I stop loving my neighbor? Jesus says, one's neighbor and one's love for neighbor, it's not based on their tribe, it's based on their need. As he frames this story, which is so wise. And then he continues on in verse 31. And he says, now by chance, a priest, speaking of Jewish priests, we assume, was going down that road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came down to the place and saw the man on the side of the road, passed by on the other side. Again, uh, this is super sensitive and startling that Jesus would continue on in the parable in this way because within the us-them tribal culture of the day, these two guys that Jesus starts with here that come down the side of the road first, their connection to the temple gave them an extremely honorable and righteous status in the nation of Israel. So, so these two, the priest and the Levite, they had honor in the culture, not that they had achieved necessarily by the character of their life, but that they had been given or ascribed to them based on their priestly and Levitical ancestry. And so in other words, they, like the lawyer, they in this tribal culture embody the us. There's an us-them sort of dynamic. The priest and the Levite are the us. They're the poster children for the us. They are Jewish, and they're not just Jewish, but they're a certain tier of Jew, right? They are conservative Jews, pure Jews, honorable Jews, temple Jews, and because of their honored status among their tribe, them passing by this man on the side of the road, this neighbor, would probably 
had been justified in their minds and in the minds of others, which may be why Jesus doesn't even bother to mention why they passed by. There's been a lot of speculation because if they did, maybe they would get ritually unclean. It's not really all that clear. And in fact, what may be more clear is that the assumption that they had a good reason to pass by because they were the poster children for what life was supposed to be like, they would just sort of get a pass. Of course, they must have a reason. Jesus doesn't even explain why. But then what he does do in verse 33 is say, but a Samaritan. And just so you're aware, Samaritans, if the Jew, if the, if the priest and the Levite were the, the us, Samaritans in the tribal culture of Jesus' day were the them. Samaritans were the hated, non-neighbor neighbor of the Jews. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. Which, again, this is explosive. Jesus, in this response to the man's question, who is my neighbor, he pictures this Samaritan, this ethnically impure, what the Jews would often call half-breed, this, this impure heretic, according to the Jews, as the obedient servant of God. So in other words, what the poster children representatives of the us of Israel failed to do in the parable, this Samaritan, reflecting the compassion and mercy of God, did. That is explosive. There, there's, there's just so many lessons that we don't have time to sort of get into here that Jesus sort of models and even framing the parable this way. But one of the clear ones is that, you know, as Christians, we need to be really careful not to overlook how God can use those who are not of our tribe. Those whose theology or politics or parenting styles or whatever we find faulty. It's important to remember, I mean, Jesus did not agree with the theology and other aspects of the Samaritan's worldview, right? You see in the rest of the stories about Jesus that he would actually correct them in various places in his ministry, which is a loving thing for Jesus to do. And yet here Jesus pictures a Samaritan being used by God. All the same. And he, verse 34, the Samaritan, it says, went to the man and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which are healing agents. And then he set him on his own animal. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend in the days ahead, I'll repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asked the lawyer, verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. It's interesting that the lawyer couldn't say Samaritan, but also interesting that the lawyer connects the love and compassion the Samaritan shows with mercy. He used that word to describe it. And Jesus said to the lawyer and to all that were still there listening in to this little debate or challenge, he said, you go and do likewise. And with that statement, Jesus dropped the mic. <laughs> like, you look for a mic drop in Scripture, there's a lot of them. Here's a really, really good one. Right? He just drops it. The debate, this lawyer's challenge of Jesus is over. And not only has the lawyer failed to trap Jesus, 
Somehow Jesus trapped him in his own trap, which I just love because Jesus got the lawyer to admit that his question and his entire view even of who his neighbor was and of how far God expects his people to reach out in their love was deformed, was wrong. And if you notice, you know, Jesus doesn't even answer the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus never answered that question, at least not directly, but his answer is clear. Everyone is your neighbor. Every human being, and especially those human beings who are vulnerable, are your neighbor, whether they are like you or not. And it really doesn't matter then what tribe the man on the side of the road is a part of. He's your neighbor. And What's more, not only does the status of whether someone is your neighbor or not not determined by their tribe, what Jesus says here teaches us that our status and our honor in God's kingdom doesn't come from our tribal identity either. Praise God. At least for those of us that aren't Jewish, just for starters, right? But it comes from God's own mercy to us. In other words, the true Israel, God's true people, are not those who have the religious or the ancestral credentials. It's those who reveal they love and have been loved by God by loving and extending mercy to their neighbors. And that's exactly what God, even in this very passage, is doing in Jesus. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to extend his love and mercy, the salvation of God, to all tribes and tongues and peoples through his life and death and resurrection. So... You get to the end of it, the real question, Jesus says, isn't who is my neighbor. The real question is, are you a neighbor? Are you neighboring? That is what's at the heart of this familiar parable. And again, it's what is at the heart of a revived church. So as Jesus begins his journey and he narrows in on intensely training his disciples, he tells them this is the priority of what he wants them and us to be and do, to be those who love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to be neighbors who love our neighbors, including and maybe especially our neighbors, who we'd be tempted to view as non-neighbors because they are not of our tribe. And, uh, and you know, I know from my own life and family and church family, and certainly I, I know from Scott's uh, burden for your church is that the, our familiarity with this parable and the call to love our neighbors is at the heart of it, that it would not numb us or stun us from living it out. And so that's sort of the third category of uh, just living out the parable. So the familiarity of the parable, the heart of the parable, living out the parable. And so I just want to ask you a number of questions as we now sort of bring this to a close and reflect on go and do likewise. Like what does it mean collectively and individually for us to live out the parable? And uh, again, I in no way intend these questions to be corrective, uh, at least based on any knowledge I have. They're just meant to be encouraging toward you doing what you've already been doing, best I understand it, from your life together. But how can Southbridge Fellowship be a congregation who continues to strive to be neighbors who proactively love and welcome your neighbors? Uh, Even, and maybe perhaps especially those neighbors, both within the church and outside of it, who were not of your tribe, according to the flesh. Which means then, who is your tribe, according to the flesh? Who's not your tribe? 
I'm, a, I'm asking you in your own mind, like when you think about the sort of groupings that our culture pushes us toward according to the flesh, whether it's political or whether it's based on brand names of clothing we wear or whether it's based on decals on the back of our cars, the sports team or whatever, like they can be shallow, they can be deep, but who is of your tribe in your mind if you're thinking through it according to the flesh? Who's not of your tribe? And are there limits based on tribalism to how far your love, either personally or collectively as a church, reaches? Like, is there anybody that you say, who is my neighbor? I don't think they're my neighbor. They're my non-neighbor neighbor. And who are those that this church would be prone to leave on the side of the road in this community. And uh, I, I don't know the demographics of rally, but I, I just assume, given how I understand gentrification to happen and economics to work, and when things go booming uh, in a triangle of research, uh, you know, there's indigenous populations and communities that aren't a part of that boom. And so I don't know how that gets spread out around town and what neighborhoods are still existing or what neighborhoods are not existing or where communities that used to live in this neighborhood now live. I, I trust that you all know that. Where in this city there are even roads that have been made into something that they once weren't, and there are people that have been left on the side of that that you can think through together. And then think through particularly what steps this church can continue to take to make sure that that who is my neighbor attitude doesn't exist in this congregation. You're not asking who's my neighbor because you're collectively together aware everybody's our neighbor. Every person that we come into contact with is our neighbor that we're striving to love together and particularly those neighbors who are most vulnerable, like the quartet of the vulnerable, as one put it, that's often talked about in scripture, right? The, the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee, we would add to that even the single mother. And especially when it comes to caring for orphans on like an orphan Sunday, you know, just thinking through that. Um, I have a friend uh, that, that wrote a book, he's a sociologist at the University of uh, Oklahoma, and uh, he's written a number of books. He's about to come out with one about civil religion, and uh, part of what he's finding is that, you know, the, from what I understand of the argument, that whatever a person's theological uh, view of the church and state is, more than their age, more than their race, more than their tax bracket determines how they vote, which is interesting. That's this new book. He did one on pornography that came out called Addicted to Lust. And, uh, but the first book he wrote was on orphan care and particularly uh, on the evangelical orphan care movement. And so for those of you that are interested in this topic, it's, a, it's not necessarily an encouraging book, I wouldn't say, uh, because he's, as much as he's offering good solutions to how the evangelical church can do a better job, he's also quite strongly critiquing the evangelical orphan care movement. You know, one of the things that he does is he talks about how all the books written about orphan care and evangelicalism in recent years, all the conferences, um, it's not moved the needle one bit in terms of how many Christians are adopting um, and, and why they're adopting. Most are still adopting because of a, a struggle with infertility, and although there's been language that's been equipping the church to speak about adoption theologically more than there's ever been, and couples more quickly sort of use that language to articulate why they're adopting, at the end of the day, the fundamental reason that most Christians still adopt, which is not a bad thing, by the way, 
but even in this culture, it's almost made to feel like a bad thing that they're adopting is because they're struggling with infertility. But the numbers haven't changed at all. All the conferences, all the books, it's not changed one bit in the evangelical church. And, um, you know, another thing that he talked about uh, years ago, and I don't know if the stats are, are still this, but, and, uh, and I want to be careful here just given my own story, but um, he talked about how uh, at one point the numbers were that, uh, I can't remember if it was white evangelicals or just evangelicals, which is basically synonymous in some ways, um, but he was saying that, um, you know, they were the most vocally opposed, this group, to abortion, which makes sense and is a good thing, uh, we would say, and yet uh, they were the ones most loudly and strongly sort of saying, that's not good, you can't do that, and the least willing and likely to adopt transracially. So they were coming to single parents or others who were tempted to have abortion for many different reasons, and they were saying, you can't do that, out of one side of their mouth, with great conviction, and then over here saying, but we won't take care of you. We won't help you. Now, thankfully, your church is not saying that. You're, you're, you're a little bit more consistent in your ethic of saying, no, this is a person, this is a human, abortion is wrong, and please choose to have the baby, and we're doing what we can to help you have that baby and care for that baby, and that's beautiful. But that's not often the case. And so even as we think about, there's so much, um, and to Scott's point, it doesn't mean that uh, evangelicals need to go about every one of us like adopting transracially. Most of us should not do that, I think. Um, but it is something to just think about as we're considering this ethic of love and how not just with our mouths or not just with one side of our mouth, but with all of our lives together as a community, as communities, as individuals, how we're gonna grow up in love together. And, uh, and I just know, given the history I have with Scott and wanna encourage you that in the same way that asking these sorts of questions as a church collectively for our congregation has led into a lot of soul searching and we're still reflecting and even thinking through the implications of this parable for our life together, I know and trust God's spirit is gonna to continue to lead you as you do the same. And, uh, and yet, coming all the way back around now, I just wanna encourage you, as you're thinking about being a revived people, that there is this direct and inevitable relationship between revival and our love for our neighbors, especially our poorest and most vulnerable neighbors. And that's why it's just so encouraging, even you'll hear in the announcement here in a few minutes, uh, that you know Southbridge serves is just another expression of the effort that for years now your church has been leaning into together to demonstrate this, you know, uh, and live this out, live out this parable together. So, in conclusion, though, you know there was a theologian uh, named Lewis Meads that once wrote that he said, and you know until the day Jesus, the Lord Jesus, returns to make all things new, he said the hardest task for people who are believers in Jesus is, quote, living the sort of life that makes people say, ah. So that's how people are gonna live when righteousness takes over the world, end quote. And living that sort of way only happens as we keep our eyes as God's people fixed on the Lord Jesus, who is the trailblazer 
and the perfecter of our faith, which I think is the best place to land this sermon and our reflection on this particular moment in Jesus' ministry, not by focusing on our love for our neighbors, but by remembering and focusing on the gospel of God's love for us. Because what revives us and compels us and creates a love for our neighbors like that of the Good Samaritan in this parable is remembering that first and foremost, we aren't the Good Samaritan in the story. First and foremost, we were the dying neighbor. And Scripture tells us that we weren't just half dead, that we were completely dead, even as we read earlier, in our trespasses and sins. Completely dead. And that Jesus, not just happening to be passing by on the way, but actually seeing our plight from heaven, from another realm, in love came to earth to rescue us. Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan. And as the ultimate Good Samaritan, he came in great love and at great cost to himself, the cost of his very life. He laid down his life on the cross in our place so that we could be healed, so that we could be bound up in our wounds, so that we could be made alive, so that we could be saved from sin and from death and ultimately from God's wrath. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're visiting, first of all, Come back. Don't judge this church or its goodness based on me. It's kind of not fair for you that you got a guest preacher in this morning. And so come back. I'm not the guy that normally preaches. Um, but if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, what we would want you to, moan, to know most about today is this news about who Jesus is and what he's done to love you, how God has loved you and even this morning is extending his love to you right now by inviting you to know this Jesus, who laid down his life so that you could be healed and set free and delivered and loved by God. You could be saved from God into his family as a son or a daughter. And this, of course, is where the double love that marks revival comes from. It comes from the great love of the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us, for you. And if you're not a Christian, we'd love to talk with you more about that today. If you've never heard that story or you have questions about it about that news of who Jesus is and what he's done. But let me just pray. Thanks again for letting me be with you. It has been a joy and a real encouragement to my heart to be among you this morning, church.